How many of you guys enjoy watching HGTV? Anybody else? So I'm learning there's a difference between being reclaimed and restored. You ever reclaimed furniture or restored furniture? I'm learning there's a huge difference. So I've been reading about this. I've been watching TV shows. I even talked to an expert this week who's actually done it professionally. Like that, that's her job. She's an artist. When you restore something, you take something and you try to take it back to its original condition. That's what restoration is. You take something that, that's older and you try to make the chair look the way it used to look, the way it was supposed to look in the beginning. But when you reclaim something, it's completely different. When you reclaim something, it actually takes some skill It takes an ability to see something and to see it for more than it's even worth. To make it even better than it was originally designed to be. In fact, as I was talking to an artist this past week, I said, so where do you find your reclaimed pieces? Where do you get them at? And she goes, well, honestly, in people's trash cans. That's where she finds them. She finds them on the side of the road. She finds them when they've been neglected because a a reclaimed art piece is something that on some level has been deemed worthless or unnecessary by somebody else. That's the definition. It's been reclaimed, taken out of one place and used for something better than ever possible. But how many of you guys have that kind of talent? Anybody have the talent to reclaim something? To actually see something and to see vision, it takes a skill set. It takes an opportunity, it takes the the, the right time, treasure, and talent. And this morning, we're going to celebrate, I think, the best reclamation story ever. That is the story of Easter. That God has reclaimed each of us, that he has the skill set and the ability to see us as we are where we are and transform us and make us even better. Even better after we've been in this fallen world. And there's something about a reclamation project. When I talked to to those artists, they said this, you know, there's something special about possession when we reclaim something. Because it's our blood, sweat, and tears. It's our time, treasure, and time that we've put in to the actual project. And when we're done, it actually feels like it's ours. Guys, this morning we celebrate because we are his, amen? And we're going to look at, I think, one of the best stories in Scripture. And it's actually the story of the woman at the well. Here's the story and my kind of my my summary statement for this morning. Your love is relentless. And the woman at the well is one of the best reclaimed stories ever, showing us Jesus' radical, relentless love. That he sees us and he pursues us, the lost and the rejected, and that he alone has the power to take us as we are and transform us to our complete and full calling as God's children. And it's for us this morning in recognizing him, recognizing his ability, his power, that we can rejoice in the reclaiming power of Jesus. And that's the text we're going to get this morning. It's specifically the woman at the well. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to pull it out. We're going to be in John chapter 4 in the Gospels. And in John chapter 4, let me just kind of paint the setting before we read the the text together. Jesus is walking. He's actually leaving one town. He's going to another. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus was up to something. And and so Jesus, because of, I think, a divine appointment, takes off. He leaves one place. He leaves Judea, and he goes to Galilee. Now, when he goes to Galilee, he's going to walk through a town that's known as a Samaritan town, specifically the town called Sychar. Now, it says that in the text that he had to. Now, the reason why I think that that John, the the author, tells us that he had to is simply this. It is the most direct route, but for Jewish people, they never would have gone through Samaria. The reason why is because the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. In fact, even for the reader, the Jewish reader that's reading this text, for him to see the word Samaria would have kind of given him chills a little bit. 
fact, one Jewish historian back in, you know, Mr. Eliezer was his name back in, in the year 100. He said this, to talk to a Jew or to interact with a Jew or to be around a Jew's saliva, his water, to share a drink, it'd be like eating the flesh of a swine. Sounds appetizing. I don't know what you're cooking tonight for dinner. But that's the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. They didn't like each other at all. In fact, the Jews thought the Samaritans were even inhabiting land that was rightfully theirs. So for this to happen, for Jesus to go through the land of Samaritan as a Jew, because Jesus was a a good Jew, for him to go through the land of Samaria, when I think the author says had to, it's because of a divine appointment. He didn't have to because he he was supposed to. He had to because God had a mission for Jesus and it was to come to sit next to a well and to sit and to meet a woman that we don't even know her name, a Samaritan woman. So that's what John says when he paints us this picture that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Most Jews would have gone around, but not Jesus. Jesus was on a divine appointment and a divine opportunity to meet this woman at the well. And my prayer for many of us is that's what today is as well. It's a chance to sit with Jesus, to hear from Jesus, to think about his power. Now, here's the reality. When we go see Jesus while he's, he's on the road here, he's going to stop. He's going to stop in this land that's not just a first century land. This is the land from Jacob all the way back from the very earliest of Jews back in Genesis. This is a land that God has used for centuries upon centuries, a sacred space where there happens to be a well. Now, when you're traveling, how many of you guys get thirsty? Some of you guys are thirsty right now. I already seen it. A little warm in here? When we're traveling and we, we go on this long journey, we see that even the author here emphasized Jesus' humanity, fully God, fully man, the son of God. He was wearied as he was on his journey and he was sitting beside a well for this divine appointment. It was a six hour. The Jews started their day at the break of dawn, which was about 6 a.m. And now at the six hours, it makes it noon. One of the hottest times in the day, six hours of traveling, Jesus is tired and he takes a seat at the well because he's there for a reason, he's there for a purpose, he's there for a person, and it's this woman. And this morning, my prayer for us, as we look at this interaction, the power of God to reclaim, that some of us need to come with fresh eyes like we've never seen before, others of us are gonna hear this story for the first time. The story's not just about woman, and it's not just about water, it's about you and me and Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we open up your word, as we look specifically at this text and what you're up to, I pray that we can see that you, Jesus, you went intentionally on this road and that you landed at this well at this moment to meet this woman. And I pray that the same is true for us today. Lord, as we think about the power of being reclaimed, of repurposed, of renewed, of having new vision, like like Hannah just talked about, of being all in for you, I pray that we see your power in the text and in your presence. So we ask you, Spirit of God, fill us in such a way that we might hear from you clearly and directly so we might live for you forevermore. And all those people said, amen. It's hard sometimes when, oh my goodness. It's hard sometimes we haven't gone to CrossFit in a couple of weeks. But I feel like there's moments when we're reading the biblical text that there's times that we forget really what's going on. And part of it is because there's a big gap between their town in the text and our town in El Dorado Hills today. It's not just 2,000 years, but that's part of the gap. But even things like a well, how many of you guys have a well? You shingle springs folks. Yeah, yeah. The rest of us, we don't use wells. We have things called faucets. It's amazing. But as we're reading this text, and specifically this week, I want us to kind of go back into their town. Because in their town, this woman is coming, and she's carrying this bucket, and she's going to a well, and she's going at the sixth hour. 
At the hottest time of the day, now I don't know about you and me, it doesn't take rocket science. If you have to go get well, if you don't have a faucet, you have to go get water from the well. When do you want to go? When it's hot or when it's cool? Not rocket science. Those of you who aren't awake yet, cool. She goes at noon. And as I read the text this week and I'm studying the text, she brings this bucket and here's the reality. I am convinced inside this woman's bucket is not just an empty space for water. I think she's bringing a lot of baggage. I think she's bringing extracurricular items with her to the well. And the reason why I say this is because I think she's carrying a burden. And it's the burden mainly because I read the text that says this, a woman, M-A-N, not woman. How many of you women travel in packs when you go to the restroom, things like that? (laughs) The same was true for them as it is for us today, not necessarily the bathroom, but the well. The well was a time of like socializing. The well was the time where you'd go with your girlfriends and you'd talk about The Bachelor and you'd hang out and, and you would share all these stories. But this woman wasn't with a pack, she was by herself. An individual woman at the hottest point of the day, and I'm convinced because inside of her bucket was a lot more than just stones of shame, but it was chains of bondage. It was things and there were reasons why she was avoiding people. She didn't want to see anybody. This wasn't a time for her to socialize. This was a time for her to get what she needed and get out. She was embarrassed by her life. She was embarrassed by her sin. This is not a woman that would have stepped foot in a synagogue. She wouldn't have come to Vintage Grace at Easter. And even maybe this morning, some of you are like, I don't even know how I'm here this morning. But she comes and it's at this point that Jesus, the son of God, God himself meets her where she is with all of her junk, the things inside of her bucket that no one even knows about that I don't even know what you've brought with you this morning. The sin, the shame, the embarrassment, the double life that we live, the things that we don't want anybody to know, that's what this woman has. And she is this woman from Samaria and she comes and Jesus, a man, interacts with her. Now this is a huge deal in their culture. Huge deal. That Jesus, a man, sitting by the well, would walk up to her and would engage with her. And we're gonna see in the text, he actually knows all the garbage in her bucket. See, we live in a world where we hide things. You ever seen that sometimes on Facebook? You guys know the polished world that we live in? Someone told me, one of our college students this week, they said, you know, there's an app that you can touch that up. And I was like, are you talking about my face? (laughs) Like, there's not an app for that. But that's the world that we live in today. We put our best foot forward. We want you not to know the whole truth, nothing but the truth. We only want you to know what we're going to reveal. And this woman is hiding in shame. She has touched up her life. She's avoided the well. She's avoided public harassment and embarrassment. She doesn't want to see anybody. And in that moment, that's when Jesus sees her. He goes and he meets her. And Jesus says to her, would you give me a drink? They're sitting by a well, commonplace. He's tired, he's thirsty. He says, will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. He sent them on and he stayed back. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a man, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You ever feel that way sometimes where you're not worthy or righteous or don't deserve the conversation or the interactions that you receive? That's how this woman's feeling. She's like, if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't be asking me for a drink of water because I'm unclean. My saliva's unclean, my bucket's unclean, and you don't even know what's inside my bucket, but it's unclean. 
And he reaches out to her. And really what Jesus is doing right now is he is going to make for her, I'm convinced, a crazy offer in this conversation. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows her story even better than she does. And he comes and he meets her at the well and he says this, give me a drink of water. Now she looks at him and she says, you don't even have a bucket. You don't have anything. No wonder why you're coming to me. You want a drink of water. And the text continues on. It says this, Jesus says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here's what Jesus says to the woman at the well. He says, you don't know who I am. If you did, it would change everything. If you did, you wouldn't have to come at noon. You wouldn't have to come at the hottest part of the day. You wouldn't have anything to be ashamed of if you knew who I am. He says this, if you knew the gift of God, I am the gift of God. Then you would be asking him for a drink of water. John, the author of this passage, as he recounts it for us, is the same author that just in the last chapter said this, for the gift of God, for God so loved the world, you know this verse? that he gave the gift of God. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would recognize him for who he is. And this woman doesn't get it. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus isn't confused. You guys have identity crises sometimes. Jesus isn't having one of those. Jesus knows exactly who he is. He's trying to reveal that to her. She doesn't know who he is. So he says this, if you knew who I was, if you knew that I was the gift of God, that I was the Messiah, then you and I would be having a much different conversation. You wouldn't say, sir, why are you offering to get a drink from me? I want to get a drink from you. Specifically, he calls it living water. Now, living water is not the new thing that they're selling at Whole Foods. Okay? Living water for them would be active, moving water. Water that that, that acts actually fresh. That's not stagnant, that's living water. And living water for the Jews and the Samaritans alike. Remember, the Jews and the Samaritans have some similarities. The Samaritans are are an offshoot of one of the tribes of Judah. That's who the Samaritans are. And they've intermarried, and that's why they're considered unclean. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, water is sacred to you and me. Water represents so much. Water can represent the Torah, the law. Water can represent the presence of God, salvation, It represents being satisfied. It represents worship. So when Jesus comes and says, I want to give you living water, I think her ears perked up. I think she knew that it was more than just water that she could draw with this well. It was active water. But she didn't totally understand what was going on. And we see this in the conversation. So the woman says to him, sir, she's going to say sir three times in this text. The word sir means Lord in the text here. She's not saying Lord. She's just simply saying sir. She's just being polite. She says, sir, You have nothing to draw water with. You ever ask God how he does the impossible? Sir, how's this going to work? How in the world are you going to give me living water because the well is deep and you don't have a bucket? Even today, this well exists in the city of Ascar, 100 feet deep today. Back then, probably even deeper. She says, sir, you don't have anything because often inside your bucket, you would carry your, your chain." The thing in which you would throw down the well and you would let it go. She says, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a chain. I think her chains are more metaphorical in bondage for her. She says, you don't have anything, sir. Where are you going to get this living water? That sounds good. It sounds special. It sounds expensive. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Now, at this point, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They just found some common ground. When she says the word, our father, I think she's simply saying this. We have some history that's similar. We've gone to church, we went to VBS together. We know some of the same people. 
our father Jacob, and she says this, are you greater than him? The implied answer is, you can't be. Do you understand what this well represents? Do you understand what's going on here, she says to Jesus. Our father Jacob gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Guys, this well is special. And Jesus says, you're right. This well is special. It's a, it's a grace of God. It's a gift of God that he has given to your people so that we might understand we need him. Jesus says to her, but do you understand that everyone who drinks of this water, what happens after you drink from the water? You'll be thirsty again. He says, do you understand that even if you drink from this water, as amazing and as historic as this well is, you will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I'm gonna give, he will never be thirsty again. And that water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's a never ending well. At this point, she's supposed to understand we're not talking about the same bottled water. She doesn't get it. Jesus is patient with her. He says, don't you understand this is reproducing? I'll never forget the time. I think I was about seven years old. I went to 7-Eleven and the machine broke and it just kept coming. Was that a good day? <laughs> Until what happens after a while? Becomes liquidy and gross. So here's what Jesus says. Most of the things of our world are going to end, but what I'm offering you is something that will never, ever, ever end. It's living water. It's eternal water. It springs up within itself more water. It is life. And that's what Jesus offers to this woman with her simple conversation they have sitting by the well. The text continues on. It says this. So then the woman says, sir, second time, sir, sir, will you give me this water? Will you give me this water? Now I want you to notice why she wants the water. Why do you think she wants the water? Because she's thirsty. That's the first thing she says, right? Sir, give me this water so that two things, I will not be thirsty. Meet a practical need. And this is what I love. Who's the one that should be thirsty after traveling for six hours in the heat of day? Jesus. But Jesus isn't thirsty. In fact, Jesus is going to say later, even in this text, he's going to say, I don't need bread or water. I am completely satisfied. But this woman that has the bucket, she's not satisfied. She says, I need to be satisfied. I don't want to be thirsty again. But I think the real thing she's saying is the second part, or that I have to come here to draw this water. You know, the word here is extremely important in John 4. Here's what she's saying. I come by myself in the dead heat because I don't want anybody to know me. You ever felt that way? I don't think it's just a Facebook metaphor for the world that we live in. I don't think any of us want anybody else to really know me. Because if you knew me, what would you find out? I'm not as special as I think I am. I'm not as special as you think I am. And you don't even think I'm that special. Guys, the touched up world that we live in, here's what the woman is saying. I avoid the people. I avoid the crowds. I avoid the city. I don't want anybody to know me. And I've said it before as a church. If you knew how sinful I was as a preacher, you'd never let me preach. I'm no different than the woman at the well. We all have these secrets and things that we're hiding, this sin, but there's a huge distinction between me and I pray you and the woman at the well, because of Jesus, I'm not thirsty. That's a big deal. 
But this woman's thirsty and she wants to avoid the harassment and the embarrassment and the shame. She doesn't want to carry this bucket literally or metaphorically. And she sure as heck doesn't want to come here because this place, this watering hole sitting by the well, this is a symbol of all of her shame, of all the things that she's embarrassed about, of all the secrets that people don't know. And even the truths that people do know that she just doesn't want to be reminded of. That's what's going on. So she says, sir, please give me this water because I don't want to come here. I don't want to come here anymore. And Jesus understands that her greatest need is not actually water. She's a lot more than just physically thirsty. She's spiritually thirsty. So Jesus says, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now you're really starting to share the truth with me. It's more than that you're thirsty. You have a bigger need. So he says this, go call your husband and come where? Here, there's something about the sacred space that Jesus has appointed and anointed for he and the woman to interact with. And he says, go get your husband and come here. We're gonna talk about real needs. Jesus doesn't do those slap on the butt sermons, guys. He goes to the heart. He's a precise surgeon that even the words in which he's saying says, we need to deal with the real issue. And the real issue is not that you're thirsty, is that you're suffering from shame. Go call your husband and come here. So the woman says this, uh, I have no husband. Now, is that true? Is that accurate? Yeah, it is true. In fact, Jesus is going to say things like, you're correct, that's true. He's not trying to be pedantic. He's not trying to mock her or make fun of her. I think he's trying to bring her along slowly. See, we often will share shades of truth, right? I have no husband. And he says, you're right in saying that, I have no husband, for you've had five and the one that you're currently living with, he's not even your husband. And that, you, what you've said, is true. He's getting to the heart of the issue, which is not her thirst, but it's her longing for a savior. It's her longing for not being living in shame. And here's where he's going. He's going to confront her in the conversation specifically about worship. Now, here's one of my concerns. When we use the word worship in America, we most often use it in reference to God. Now, I think that's rooted in a good heart. It's rooted in holiness and wanting to give to God what's only his to have. But sometimes I actually think it's counterproductive for you and me. Because here's what worship is. Here's my definition of worship. Worship is simply this, ascribing value or worth to something. You and I worship every single day. What are some of the things that we worship? Our kids. Our spouse. What else? Job. This is the audience participation point of the message, guys. My truck. My health, my wealth. Someone said my spouse. I've seen people worship other people's spouses. I think this woman would fit in that category. See, we worship all sorts of things. And you know how I know I'm worshiping something? Makes me happy. That's how I know what I'm worshiping. When I spend my time, my treasure, my talent on something, it makes me happy and I'm giving it value. I'm ascribing it worth. Now, I think that God designed us to be worshipers. That's how he designed us ultimately to worship him. It becomes idolatry when we give something more value and ascribe more worth to it than God ever intended it to have. There's sometimes I have to remind myself on the little league field, it's little league. It's not that important. It's actually not worth very much at all. Sometimes I have to remind myself about my car when the pole gets in the way. I didn't see it. It's not that important. But when I know that I'm worshiping something, it makes me happy and I feel the pain and I feel the emotions about it. And I want to stop for a minute and think about what is this woman worshiping right now? I think she's worshiping being comfortable. 
security, acceptance, sensuality, sex. She's trying to find worth and value for herself and others in the way in which she lives her life. She's worshipped men, and I'm pretty sure men have worshipped her. But you know what they found in time? They're not worth each other. The things in which she's ascribing value to, they're actually not worth it. In fact, Jesus says it this way, none of your husbands have worked. Now, how many of you ladies have said that before? None of your husbands have worked. See, it wasn't about the husband. It wasn't about the first husband or the second husband or the third, the fourth, the fifth, or the boyfriend she's living with now. Your husband will never make you as happy as Jesus can, ladies. You want to hear that? Ever. Men, no woman will ever make you as happy as you want her to make you, ever. Now, can we just take some pressure off of ourselves? Only one person will make us happy, and it's Jesus. Jesus comes and he says this, none of your husbands have worked, not your first, second, third. In fact, in your third husband in the Jewish culture, after three marriages, you were done. That's all you got. So we're not even sure, the commentator is not even sure how she got a fourth husband or a fifth husband or where they came from. And, and maybe now she's really done and there's all sorts of theories on that. But here's the point. None of them were really going to satisfy her. Not really. And she was never really going to satisfy them. In fact, it's not about water, but it's about what she worships and what will actually satisfy so she'll never be thirsty again. We define sin at Vintage Grace as settling for less. It's offensive to God because it's worshiping things other than him. It's thinking that that will make me happy other than him. And he's going to confront her worship specifically about her husbands. The woman says this, you know, when you start to see things about yourself that maybe you didn't even know, the psalmist says it this way, the heart's deceitful, not just Facebook, but also the heart. And here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't just saying, this is who I am. You know what Jesus is doing for the woman at the well? He's showing her who she is. See, she thought that only three of the marriages were public. I'm speculating here. But she thought, come on, I've been hiding this. No one really knows I'm living with this guy. No one really knows that I failed over and over and over again. Again, we don't know why the marriages failed. That's not the point. The point is they were illegitimate forms of worship. And she speaks to her and he says this and he reveals herself to herself. And that's uncomfortable. You ever sat in a spiritual mirror? Is it ugly? It's ugly. When we see ourselves for who we are and we see our sin and our shame and the things that we don't want anybody else to know, the things our spouses don't know, our neighbors don't know, our friends don't know, he, Jesus, reveals this to her and she says, sir, this is uncomfortable and I perceive that you're a prophet. You know things that you shouldn't know about me, some things I don't even know if I know myself. And he says, sir, she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet and she wants to do what many of us want to do when we get to church and we're uncomfortable. What do we want to do? Change the subject. She says this, let's talk about worship. That's what Jesus is really after. He wants to talk about worship. She says, okay, let's talk about not what we worship, but where we worship. So she says, our fathers, again, a distinction between Jews and Samaritans, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Now, I think as they sit at the well, I think they can see the mountain that she's talking about. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, Jesus, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship because the Samaritans stopped after the Torah. They only read the first five books of the Bible, then they stopped. And they were an accumulation and a a mix and a mud of all sorts of different religions. At this point, Jesus says this. He looks at her and she wants to talk about where we worship. He says, woman, believe me, the hour, you say I'm a prophet, I'll speak prophetically. The hour, the time is coming 
When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you worship as Samaritans what you do not know. We Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's not disowning her because of her religious background. But he's saying if you claim Jews or Samaritans, you're off. It's not about your father that you claim on this earth. It's about your father that you claim spiritually. He continues on. He says, but the hour is coming and there's now what? Right here. There's going to be a time in the world history when the Messiah is going to come. And again, if you knew who I was, you'd be talking to me differently, Jesus says. The time is now here because the gift of God, me, I am here now. When true worshipers, not Jews or Samaritans, he kind of creates a new worship class. True worshipers, he calls them. When true worshipers will worship not their earthly fathers, but their heavenly father in spirit and in truth. And God the Father is seeking these kinds of people right now. That's what Easter is all about. God the Father is living in our world as Jesus in this context, as he sends the Son, that God is living here in Christ. And he's walking around and he is seeking for people to reclaim He is seeking people that on one level they're embarrassed and they're hiding and he seeks them to reclaim them and he seeks these people to worship him specifically in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Here's my concern for for many of us if we grew up in the church. We often worship in spirit or in truth, not both and. We might have head knowledge, but it hasn't penetrated our hearts. Some of us, like the one at the well, should probably feel more shame. But instead we say, no, 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 God loves me. It's true. And it is. Some of us, we we seek the spiritual frenzy. We seek the emotions. But guess what happens to emotions? They're an indicator of our heart, but they change. But God's love never changed. His love is relentless. And he's looking for people, God the Father is, that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not either or both and. Because that's the core question for all of us this Easter is what do we worship? Now, as we continue on, this is probably my favorite verse in the whole text this morning. I love this. So Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah himself, makes this proclamation that God the Father is looking for people to worship him. Hello, I'm sitting at the well with you because I'm looking for you to worship me, he says to the woman. And this is what I love, the woman as a good Samaritan. The Samaritan people, they were looking for clarity on the Messiah. They were looking for a teaching Messiah. They weren't like the Jewish people. The Jewish people were looking for a redeeming, rescuing, reclaiming Messiah. But the Samaritans, they were looking for education. They stopped at the end of the five books of the Torah. They were looking for some clarity. So here's what I love. The woman looking for the Messiah is now going to educate the Messiah. Here's what the text says. The woman said to him, You know, Jesus, we got all these questions about what we worship and where we worship. Here's the good news, Jesus. The Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to clarify all this for us. Did you all find that hysterical? Jesus, you got to meet this Messiah, dude. How often do we do that to God? Well, God, let me figure this out. Let me take care of my bucket. I'm the one that put the rubbish in my bucket, right? Have we gotten that far? Are we that mature as humans where we're like, hey, that's my sin. Are we still living with it's everybody else's fault? No, no. This stone, these chains, these things, this is my choice. I'm not saying there aren't bad things in the world that have happened to us, but in my bucket, spiritual bucket, oh man, these are mine. 
She says, but the Messiah is going to come and he's going to help us understand where we should worship and what we should worship. And this is what I love. This confrontation is worship. Here's what Jesus says. He said to her, I who speak to you, I am. I am the Messiah that you seek, that you long for, that you desire to have. I am he. And Jesus doesn't just reveal herself to herself. He finally confesses himself to her. And the confession is not this deceitful confession, like I've been hiding this from you. The confession is simply this. You are looking for the one that's going to change everything. I'm that one. I'm not trying to hide this from you. That's why I'm offering you living water. I am that guy. I am God. Now, at this point, the disciples come back because they've been off getting food, remember? And the disciples come back, and this is just kind of a sidebar. If you consider Vintage Grace your home church, this, this is just for you. If not, you can tune out for 10 seconds. Because here's what I want to note for those of us in the church. How many times do we in the church say, Psh, I don't know how they missed it. Psh, stupid woman at the well. Now, we would never say that out loud because we're too smart for that, right? But in our hearts, do we feel it? The disciples come back and they literally see Jesus talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman, this sinful, unclean, impure woman. And the disciples come back and they marvel. We've been walking through the book of Luke on Sunday mornings. And over and over again, when people see Jesus, you know what they do more than anything else? Ah! They marvel, they're in awe that he was talking to a woman, but no one had the guts to say, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? We're gonna keep dealing with this church. Sinners, we are saints that are sinners saved by grace. That's it, nothing else. And the disciples don't understand who Jesus is either. That's why they have to walk with him. We as, as Christians, we're beggars that have found food, people who are thirsty that have water. That's it, amen? And these Christians come back, these disciples come back, and I think on some level, they miss the call of Jesus, not just the confession, but the call. But I wanna focus on the woman because I think she actually gets it. Jesus. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. It's almost like Jesus walks to her bucket because he doesn't have one. And it's almost like Jesus says, hey, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that has the ability to take your rock, your awful rock, all this weight. I'm the guy that can chisel and can sand and can make it exactly what you need it to be. I have the skills and the time and the talent to reclaim you. That's what he says when he says, I am he. You've been hiding all these things from everybody else, but you can't hide them from me. I already know. I know what's in the history of your computer. I know what goes on when no one else is around. I'm there, I'm God. And he says this, don't worry, I'm he. He comes to the woman, he says this, he pulls out his sanding belt, he pulls out his tools. He's patient with her, he's calm. He says, I already know it all, but I am he. You see, what it takes to be a reclaim artist is having not just the vision for what someone, someone or something else could be, but also the skill set. I don't have it. I can't change myself, let alone change somebody else. But Jesus says, I am he. I have the ability to change anything and everything and to make it new and to reclaim it for a better purpose, for my purpose. And I think the woman finally gets it. She finally hears that message. Jesus doesn't see her for as she really is, the scandalous harlot. 
It's not that he doesn't know. He knows. He's told her, oh, no, no, woman, I know. But he sees her not for what she is, but for what she can be. She sees her as an image bearer of God. And she says, he says to her, I'm here for you. I didn't actually need a glass of water. Newsflash. I'm God. I wanted you to see that I need nothing, but I want you. And the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. And I am here right now, not on accident, but because I had to, because you had to hear this message. Church, we need this message. You and I need this message, whether you've walked with Jesus forever or not. We need to be reminded of the reclaiming power of God. We need to actually look at these chains that we have on us and understand that we as believers have been set free, that God loves us as we are where we are, and he loves us so much to take us there, to reclaim us for himself, and to make us new. Is that good news? That's Easter. That God so loved the world that he gave the greatest gift in his son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, would not live in shame, would not live hiding their life, but that they would be set free. Oh, how can it be? It's because of Jesus. It's because the gospel. And the woman, I think, hears this message and here's what she says. So the woman, she looked at her jar and she finally gets it. I don't need water. All of you came in this morning with certain needs in your mind of the things that you needed. And I don't know what they were. I don't know if it was a new spouse, a different spouse, more money, less money, a different house. You you have those needs in your mind, right? We all have them. The things that we worship, the things that we think will make us happy. If only that person would leave me alone. If only I had this. If only this. It's if-then theology. The only if is Jesus. And the woman hears that message. So she looks at her water jar and she says, this ain't gonna do me any good because I got living water that's welling up inside of me. And this is what I love. I love this verse. She gets at her water jar, she leaves it and she goes into the town and she says to the people, the people that just a few verses before she's trying to avoid because she's embarrassed. And she walks up to these people and she says, guys, and they're like, What? You don't talk to us. You don't hang out with us. You avoid us. You're a sinner. She says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. There's no more touch up in her life anymore. She doesn't have to touch up. Jesus paid it all. Come and see this man in the same way that she says, you're not as good as our father Jacob. She says in the positive, can this be the Christ? And in that one verse, she goes from being a sinner to being a beggar that's found food, a thirsty woman that's found living water. And she goes and she tells people, guys, this guy, Jesus changes everything. And here's the power of God's reclaiming work. God's not dead, amen? He is risen. God's not dead, but God's not done. Not with you. Not with me, not with any of us. God is not dead and he's not done. And this morning at Easter, we celebrate the power of God to redeem 